Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 169. In this episode, we're talking about autism and the church with Professor Grant McCaskill. Professor Grant McCaskill is Kirby Lang Chair of New Testament Exegesis and co-director of the Center for Autism and Theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's also the author of several books, including Autism and the Church, Bible, Theology, and Community, published by Baylor University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stanley Ng, Dr. Madison Pierce, Dr. Chris Song, Dr. Sidney Tooth, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this conversation with Professor McCaskill, we talked about hermeneutical issues and practical ecclesial matters. And I just have to say it was it was a, it was a joy to have him on the podcast. And it was it was fun to talk about uh, church matters in particular, because I went to church with him when I was a student in St. Andrews. It was so wonderful because it was such a unique experience, because one of the things that he would do is he would lead worship by stomping in in beat and we would sing sing the psalms a cappella and it was just such a wonderful uh ecclesial experience and so it was it was kind of fun to circle back and talk about ecclesial matters uh with him in this conversation what were some of the takeaways that you all had from our time with professor mccaskill well grant is one of my academic heroes and i also got to be at church and enjoy his uh psalm singing from the front um so just a joy always to chat with him but yeah, I particularly enjoyed the thinking about the practical outworkings of this within the church and just wealth of resources he provided us with to be thinking about this and the encouragement to um, listen to autism-led resources and voices and, and think about it in terms of loving the whole body well um, and um, how together as a body we flourish. Uh, so it was just a really helpful episode. I really enjoyed hearing Grant encourage us towards these more creative or maybe more varied expressions in worship. Um, as somebody who comes from a relatively traditional framework, you know, who fancies myself Anglican, you know, it's hard to kind of imagine moving away from something like the liturgy. But I think it's so important to understand the freedom that we have in the liturgy, that it's a starting point and that it gives us space. So I really loved that. Dr. Grant McCaskill is always interesting. And so this was a really, um, I think, wonderful conversation. For me, the, the thing that I'm thinking about having gone through that conversation is the emphasis on, on the local, on, on the individual churches. It's, it's really uh, impossible to, to generalize about autism as, as sort of a thing to be approached. Um, it's often said in these contexts, if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. So I think Grant is very helpful here in helping us be attentive to, uh, to, the, to the people across the spectrum that we will encounter in our churches. So I thought that was very helpful, um, his comments on scripture, uh, both in helpful ways and also less helpful ways. Um, I think is a really important uh, contribution to this uh, discussion as a whole. Yeah, wonderful stuff. And today's episode was really great for me um, as I'm navigating uh, just working in a in a place where uh, others are um, autistic or others who 
um, have ADHD um, in leadership positions as well. Um, so it's been great just for myself personally, um, being in these situations, but the, in these scenarios, but at the same time, having Grant on the podcast really helps refine things, especially uh, what it means to approach autism um, and, and other scenarios uh, from a biblical lens. Uh, one thing that I really enjoyed is really his challenge for us at, at the end of the at the end of the episode. Um, so I don't want to spoil it here, um, but ultimately how our perspective of autism in the church, how it can be a double-edged blade, and how do we best navigate through that. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor Grant McCaskill. Well, Professor McCaskill, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Well, we're really excited to chat with you about your book, Autism and the Church. And as we begin, uh, we'd love to hear a bit about, you know, what you're setting out to do in that book, but also uh, why you decided to to write it. Mm. So probably the big piece of context for, for the book that is the most important thing to raise is um, that I'm autistic. So I was only diagnosed with autism after writing the book but I've been aware of it for much longer. So that's the big context and, and in many ways, the big motivation for writing the book. Um, like many people, particularly perhaps many people of my age, I was very late diagnosed. Uh, and that reflects some changes in the way that autism is conceived as well as in some changes in the awareness of autism. Uh, but all of that factored into the book. So I, I had a growing awareness for a long time that I was autistic and uh, therefore a growing interest in what it might mean to read the Bible in relation to autism and to think about theology in relation to autism. And one of the big factors that drove that was that where I was seeing either popular or academic theological engagement with autism, it often presumed autism to be a negative thing. Uh, so it often operated with accounts of autism that focused on deficiency or deviation from a particular standard, um, or even that the really went into much worse places than that. So really what was driving me was that I wanted to develop approaches to autism, which started with the presumption that autism is a good thing and not a bad thing. Uh, and that explored the ways in which the Bible might constructively resource theologies of autism that approaches a good thing, but also that might challenge readings of the Bible that are used in service of a very negative representation of autism. So trying to overcome and to challenge some of those, which is a balance of thinking about how the Bible can be interpreted for autistic people and by autistic people but also of thinking about how the Bible might be used inappropriately to describe autistic people. So there, there were a range of challenges that um, contextualized the book. And I will say that one of the big factors in writing the book was that, um, although I'd been thinking about this for a long time, once I made the move to Aberdeen, 
to the University of Aberdeen, I was surrounded by a number of other colleagues who were also thinking either about autism or about related issues from a theological perspective. So it was a good contextual opportunity to begin to pursue that. I wonder, thank you, Grant. I appreciate that introduction. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about some of the um, content of what you outlined in the book. So the ways that the Bible does speak to the experience of those with autism or, or talks about autism, however you want to frame that. So my key emphasis in the book is that we don't need to look for representations of autism, maybe culturally coded representations of autism in scripture, for it to be relevant to autistic experience. Uh, I was really pressing for us to think about how the Bible might be read more broadly in relation to diversity and difference and to the kinds of power dynamics that are often at work in relation to these. So some of the ways in which people who conform to a particular social uh, normality or a particular social standard might uh, marginalize or undervalue those who diverge from that social standard. So in other words, diversity, neurodiversity, difference, and the kind of power dynamics at work. And I also wanted to think about how the Bible might speak into the kind of pastoral experiences that those of us who are autistic might have, particularly with the aspects of the condition that can sometimes be quite difficult for us. Um, now, my thinking on this is always in process. When I wrote the book, there wasn't much around on how the Bible could be read constructively in relation to autism. And most of what I came across was written by neurotypicals. Now, they were often working with a pretty heavily stereotyped account of autism, which was usually negative and was usually based on deficit. And they were looking for ways in which they might see that account reflected in the representations of various characters or in various stories. And that was really what I was concerned about and pressing back on. Uh, because basically it involved a bad account of autism combined with often bad readings of scripture. Uh, and I think often the biblical authors just aren't interested in the kind of historical or biographical detail that might, uh, that, that might be relevant to that kind of approach. Now, having said that, you know, more has emerged since I wrote the book. It's a few years ago that I wrote the book. And more has emerged since that's been written by actually autistic people um, where they're drawing on their actual lived experience and where they're seeing some of the phenomena of that lived experience reflected in the phenomena they see in biblical stories. And I think that's categorically different. Um, and I'm, I'm quite interested by some of the ways in which autistic people are seeing autistic qualities in the narratives. I still think we need to be a little bit careful with that for the same reason that I don't think the biblical authors are always trying to give us access to those kind of historical or biographical details. I mean, often they're using characters to develop a story and sometimes maybe to embody characteristics or values that, that in their mind, they, they do want to represent as negative. So I think we need to be a little bit careful there. I mean, as an example of that, you know, we, we could look at a character like Nicodemus and the way that Nicodemus uh, seems to hear Jesus' words in very literal terms. And we can 
resonate with that because it can sound very like our, our own experience. Um, and we can see in Nicodemus then some artistic qualities. And I think that's that's fine. But we do need to be careful because I'm not sure that that's what John intended. Uh, and many scholars would see the representation of Nicodemus in John chapter three to be some kind of embodiment or development of the account of spiritual darkness in John chapter one. I mean, Nicodemus is a, obviously a character in process at this point. Um, so I think we just need to be careful. I, I wouldn't want to suggest that the meaning of any scripture is ultimately confined to what the author intended. Uh, meaning is always generated as, as readers approach it, and meanings have a way of, of growing and developing. But I think if what we're saying uh, cuts across what an author might have attend, intended, then we will, I think, sometimes put ourselves in, in, in a difficult position, particularly if we're talking to other people for whom the author's intent might be significant. So I'm not saying that we can't do it, but I think we, we need to be quite careful in how we approach these materials uh, and just be sensitive to the fact that the authors aren't necessarily seeking to give us access to, to what we're interested in. So the other example I think comes with a little bit of a trigger warning uh, uh, because this involves some fairly disturbing identifications of autism that do occur in uh, Christian communities and actually occur in other religious communities, which is where some of the phenomena that can be associated with autism uh, are identified with demon possession. Um, and that's an example where people will read the various accounts of demon possession and see some of the phenomena associated, particularly um, phenomena of um, uh, of violent behaviour or of uh, apparently self-destructive behaviour. And we'll map that onto popular perceptions of what autism is, and we'll decide that what they regard as a sudden explosion in the frequency of autism is actually a surge in demonic activity. Uh, and I've literally come across websites that represent that view and more disturbingly have seen on those websites comments from parents who are talking about their children using that kind of language. So um, I don't want to suggest, I don't want to be very dramatic about that and to suggest that it's, it's um, especially widespread or especially common, but it is out there. And it's something that, again, I think needs to be carefully challenged. Thank you, Grant. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And I can see where those appeals to the biblical narratives really rely significantly on, on various stereotypes of um, those who are not considered neurotypical um, and, and, you know, ironically doesn't deal with the full spectrum of those who would be um, identified with ASD. I wonder if I can um, follow up because one of the threads that I heard in your answer was about um, these sort of normative ways of interpreting. And it struck me being familiar with some of your other work, um, that this is probably one of the intersections that having worked on theological interpretation, um, that this work on um, another kind of normative reading is connected. Would you, I mean, I could be wrong, 
but I'd love to hear you talk about how this does intersect with what you've done in theological interpretation and some of your other work. Yeah, there, there's a really interesting uh, connection between these two comments. And actually, it came up at a, um, at a conference I was involved in a few years ago, or a symposium, uh, with a number of people representing various uh, disabilities and groups working with disabilities, and also a number of people representing different neurodivergent groupings. Um, and it was interesting because I used the language of the normative role of scripture with the kinds of theological associations it will typically have and has typically had through the, the centuries of the church. Um, and it was interesting that language that I would generally have regarded as, as fairly well accepted, fairly positive language, uh, triggered negative reactions in one or two of the other people there, precisely because for them that the core part of the word of norm um, had been associated with some experience of what I described er earlier as the tyranny of normalcy. So because so many people who are either neurodivergent or biodivergent in the sense of uh, having some kind of disability, so many of them I think are very sensitive to the extent to which ableism norms, shapes the, the way that we talk about things. So when you start to talk about a positive normativity or a positive uh, normative role for scripture, that's actually quite a difficult thing for, for some people to, to line up. I think in some ways, the key point for me that I think I would use to, to constructively lean into that issue is that there's a, there's a kind of presumptive or unwitting uh, normalizing or normative process that takes place when people without realizing it, without recognizing it, buy into a, a bunch of standards that need to be challenged and disrupted. And actually we all do that all the time in different ways. None of us really is exempt from it. And it's built into our very language. So some of the ways in which we will utilize uh, what for us are, are just figures of speech, but actually once you once you stop and think about them, really are negative representations or draw upon negative representations of disabilities. So whether it's talking about someone as spiritually blind or as spiritually deaf, uh, or actually, as is the case with some work using autism, to talk about people who are uh, deficient in their relationship with God and with other people as spiritually autistic. I mean, that's quite a difficult thing to live with if you're autistic, because essentially you're becoming the basis for a metaphor that is negative. So what it highlights is the extent to which we, we can often buy into uh, or participate in normalizing ways of thinking without our realizing it. And one of the crucial differences then is that ways of thinking about scripture as playing a, a normative role are actually about something that is conscious and deliberative that might challenge these tacit, presumptive, almost instinctive ways of thinking, 
which is you know to put it in in um, uh, to put it I think in in biblical terms it would be about recognizing what it means to listen to the word uh, and not merely to trust in the flesh to to trust in our our natural ways of judging people. At the same time, I think it's important that the way that scripture classically is understood to norm theology is not the same way that many people today, particularly within evangelicalism, will think about the authority of scripture. So it doesn't just involve reading a text, extracting its meaning, and then applying that text. It involves the careful activity of interpretation and recognizing that um, if, if you're not careful in that act of interpretation and of lining your interpretation up with, with the gospel, that you're in danger of actually implementing some of those nasty instincts precisely in your interpretation. So you read the Bible, you extract a meaning, and then you talk about autistic people as if they're lesser, or you talk about other people as if they're lesser. I also was thinking about the um, the ways that some of your work, and this is the case in other work on theological interpretation as well, talks about trying to decenter, you know, kind of white male perspectives and the ways that those have also been normative. And so I was thinking of normative in a negative sense in theological interpretation, but I really appreciate the the reminder that you know, that that word does have these really positive connotations when used otherwise um, that you've highlighted here. So thank you, Grant. It's an interesting point. I mean, what, I think one of the interesting points um, is that the, uh, the driving significance of the white male interpretation. Um, I mean, I come from a linguistic minority, which I think changes the way that I, I think about a lot of things. Um, and that's it's both a linguistic and a geographical minority, as well as belonging to a neuro minority, if you like. So all of these things affect the way that I, I think about things. But I think what's interesting is that if you're not aware of some of these dynamics, you can far too easily slip into um, a particular interpretation of the text, then being labelled as neutral and its content is then labeled as biblical so it's an interesting thing that you, you know the word biblical if, if if you look at its usage in literature there's a little it, it's barely used until the end of the 19th century and then there's a blip in its use and then around about 1979 1980 it suddenly takes an upswing and starts to be used everywhere that um, there's just a massive growth. Now, there's probably a lot of explanations for that, and one is probably simply the growth of some publishing movements um, and the dissemination of their work, which which affects the the incidence of work of words. But I think there's also something cautionary there about whether we throw a word around pretty easily and pretty quickly, and with a particular authority attached to it, and in doing so, really short circuit some important stages of interpretation and theological reflection that are involved in, in actually using the Bible well as distinct from using the Bible badly. In your book, you, you lay out several principles that, that might help correct 
um, sort of this uh, this this rush to um, uh, you know what does the Bible say about autism, and then sort of um, go about it in 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 a particularly haphazard way. Um, out of these principles, is there something out of these principles? Excuse me, is there something that uh, that that you think uh, would be particularly helpful um, to sort of help instruct readers of scriptures and churches of scripture to um, to sort of reorient um, the way they interact with scripture in a way that's uh, sensitive to some of these themes and topics? Yeah, I think there's probably. I probably can't single out a, uh, one thing. Um, so I think there's probably a few things. One is, I think, to be attentive to the material form of scripture as, as a collection. You know, the, the way that we often think about the Bible as normative often uses this concept of the Bible as a manual for life or as a handbook for life. And that's just not a fair way to represent what the Bible is. Um, I mean, I sometimes joke with people that, you know, I, I, have, I have lots of manuals for software and for, I was gonna say VCRs, which ages me quite significantly, um, but for various other devices, none of them, none of them walk me through what I need to do by sharing poems and proverbs or periodically bursting into song in ways that appear to be completely irrelevant to, to the task I'm trying to fulfill. But that's how scripture exercises its authority. That, or a, maybe a better way to put it is that's how scripture shapes us and norms us. And I think we need to be, need to be attentive to that. Um, and part of that attentiveness is also about paying attention to the kinds of proportions that things have. So um, the stories about demons in scripture are actually, um, they're not everywhere. They have a, a particular proportionality and they need to be contextualized by other elements. Um, and also I think at the same time, we need to be careful that what we're not doing is squeezing lots of actually different accounts together because it suits us to do so. Um, now, what I mean by that is that actually, if, if you look at what people are doing, comparing the phenomena of autism to the phenomena that are associated with demon possession narratives in, uh, in the gospels, they're not actually the same phenomena. Um, and the way you get there is, is by kind of squeezing them all together um, particularly in the gospel narratives, so that you, you can somehow find a way of, of making what you find in those narratives fit the experience of autism. Um, there are some superficial similarities which allow people to do that. And I think what's important, this is really important, I think the fact that people come to their Bibles from interpretative cultures um, that perhaps immediately presume what, what might be called biblical or what might be understood to be biblical so that a particular culture might enable that way of thinking about the demonic and the phenomena that go with it. And if you're not in a culture that does that, you might not reach for that. 
but you might and you might be smug about the fact that you're not reaching for that but you might reach for other things that are equally problematic that you call biblical and you might project them onto the reading of autism so a lot of it i think is about being aware of what we're what we're dealing with in scripture um the way that it utilizes narratives alongside lots of other genres the way that it utilizes command material within and alongside lots of other genres um, and be very careful about jumping to apply the term biblical to any single bit of it dislocated from its context um, that's that's very often the way that we end up with an inappropriate reading of scripture it's it's a kind of moving from a particular badly read proof text to a badly implemented um application i i had never heard before that uh nicodemus um you know might might be autistic or that some scholars have have suggested this but maybe for our listeners uh, a, a modern example that might be coming to to mind is the representation of matthew in the chosen and i'm wonder I, i'm wondering if you're familiar with that and if you have any thoughts about that um not only of course why they would choose to do that but how they have executed it and and what what your thoughts are on that yeah <clears throat> so i haven't watched that series but uh but my wife has and she she talked about precisely that point so i in a sense i can't really comment on on the show having not seen it um maybe the best thing would be just to ask you to comment on it actually and then i can make a response well I, you know my my assumption is that what they've done is they've considered the way that Matthew is presented. I think they're working with the Methian priority. I have some reasons for that, which I don't need to get into. But I think what they've done is they've they've noticed the detail in numbers and generations. You know, starting with the genealogy and all of that. And I think they've they've maybe just thought that Matthew seems more particular and detail oriented than the others. That could you know, in their kind of uh, creative way reflect some neurodivergence and and maybe you know partially too they wanted to to represent neurodivergence because statistically that that's probably likely I don't know if they've done it in a helpful way I, I am not going to comment on that I'd love to hear your thoughts like I said but but at least that idea I mean you, I think you've already given us some sort of guidelines about the problematic ways in which we might make assumptions and I think that's operative here um, but I am I am curious if you do get around to watching it, what you think yeah. about the yeah. portrayal. So that's really interesting. I mean, what's interesting about that, I wouldn't, personally, I wouldn't like to stake anything on the authorship of Matthew necessarily being Matthew the tax collector. Um, but I think it's an interesting example. And from what you're saying, it sounds as if that's quite a sympathetic take on autism, maybe drawing on, on real experience. And I think what's interesting about that is it's it's not about trying to uh, find historical or biographical details uh, in the representation of characters that might be at odds with what the authors are trying to do, but that's actually just about being attentive to the positive qualities of the works that have been created by particular people who may may well have been autistic. And I hadn't really thought about that in terms of Matthew, but it's often struck me that uh, John's Gospel, for example, has has a very close attention to particular points of detail, particularly 
chronological detail and its significance, and often perhaps linked to a very detailed understanding of the Jewish calendar. Uh, and John's Gospel also is actually full of some really interesting sensory detail. So one of the things with autism is that our experience of the sensory world can be very different, can be much more intense than that of other people. And John is full of sensory imagery. Dorothy Lee has worked on that sensory imagery. And one of our graduate students in Aberdeen, Janine Hanger, has worked on the sensory elements that are drawn into the I am sayings of John's gospel. Um, another book that I think uh, bears lots of, the, lots of the hallmarks of autistic interest is the book of Revelation, which is an incredibly complicated book, uh, utilizes these very intricate patterns, also makes very intricate use of prior scripture and um, reflects, I think, the kind of unusually sustained interest in patterns and in the systematizing of patterns that is often seen with autistic people and that, you know, I want to emphasize is a strength rather than a weakness. Uh, John's gospel is almost dizzying in its complexity, but that's the kind of quality that I think might be generated by someone with an autistic interest in scripture, in the emergence of patterns within scripture, and a capacity to bring these into uh, a, a new pattern. I mean, I, I, you know, I've said often that I, I think many of the great theological thinkers through history were probably autistic. And I think that is reflected in their capacity to sustain interest in a topic, even in the systematic qualities of a topic, long beyond what most people would have been able to sustain. And again, I want to say that I think that's a strength. And I think some of the examples of this are, are visible in the construction of bits of scripture. I wanted to ask about, uh, as I was reading rereading the first chapter today, I was just thinking about, I think awareness of autism is very thankfully grown and, and you really helpfully lay out the history of research on autism and, and how that's changed and how, how the spectrum, the awareness of the spectrum has grown. And I think uh, from a, I don't know, maybe a, an attempt to be more aware, I've noticed, and I wonder if anyone else has noticed this, this trend of people wanting to almost say, oh, we're all on the spectrum or, or getting away from this, um, normal uh we're we're all different uh sort of view which i think is really problematic in a lot of ways but it raised for me the question of just thinking about how churches how can churches communicate well and interact well without othering those who are autistic and um, but also without downplaying the real differences that there are among us yeah yeah that that's uh that's a <laughs> That's a great question. Um, maybe the first thing I'll say is that even since I wrote the book, both advocacy activity and research activity around autism have moved on significantly. Um, to the extent that I, I would really love to get another edition of the book out reasonably quickly um, in order to reflect some of that. 
So there have been changes in the kind of language preferences that research has identified among autistic people. Um, and there have also been uh, shifts in the way that different aspects of autistic experience are, are understood. And I think probably one of the key things to say on, on the back of that is that um, the, the downside of autism awareness, I mean, here's an interesting point. Most autistic people dread Autism Awareness Day or Autism Awareness Month. I mean, you just dread it because you know that for, for a period of time, uh, social media and, uh, and the general media are going to be flooded with accounts of autism that um, are usually from the perspective of non-autistic non people trying to be very understanding about autism. Um, and it can still continue to buy into negative representations of autism to, to deficiency accounts. Um, it can still presume medical model type accounts, or it can buy into the kind of language preferences that have been promoted by academic writing, but not actually by, by autistic people themselves. So at least in English speaking circles, most autistic people prefer the construction autistic person. Uh, so they prefer identity first language um, rather than person first language. Um, and there's some good research that, that highlights that and, and explains why. But I think one of the key points is, is to be aware that the material that's out there for autism awareness really is a mixed bag and probably reflects, in many cases, some outdated understandings of autism and some problematic understandings of autism. And to be aware that there's there's a growing amount of material and an, an ever-growing amount of material that's available that is actually developed and led by autistic people themselves. So one of the key things for autism awareness, I think, is, is to look for material that's written by autistic people or that's produced by autistic people. Uh, there was a recent documentary, a set of documentaries in the UK called Inside Our Autistic Minds, which was um, fronted by Chris Packham, who's an autistic uh, scientist in the UK. And they were really wonderfully received by the autistic community in general uh, because they were autism led and because they, they reflected a really authentic experience of autism. So I think look for the autistic led material. Um, try to stay aware of some of the recent stuff. Um, one one way to do that, but also one way one context where you need to be careful is through social media, where there's there's a lot of representation of autistic viewpoint by autistic people. Uh, what you'll very quickly encounter there are the differences, and often quite combative differences. So so that's an area where you have to be careful, but you can also find some really wonderful stuff on there. Thinking more specifically um, about how churches can can think about the needs of everyone, autistic people and and um, neurotypicals and just everything. Um, I think one thing I've been thinking about. So our church uh, recently started having the children in during the entire service, um, and uh, that I mean, in some ways, it almost makes church more inclusive in the sense that it's loud and noisy. And in some ways, it's really, really nice 
in other ways, I imagine that's really, really difficult for a lot of people. Um, it's hard to sometimes hear the sermon. It's it just is loud and noisy. Um, and I, I was just thinking about the tension in that about for some autistic people who are nonverbal or um, would have what would be classed as square quotes disruptive behavior that might actually make it a more helpful environment. Um, but then for those who have sensory um, sound in particular issues, that might actually be an awful environment. And so I was just thinking about the tension yeah. of that um, and how to navigate those sorts of things well as a church leader, as a church family. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any simple answer to that. Um, I should say that there are some useful guidelines that have been prepared um, that are available online that have been prepared by autistic people for church leaders. Uh, so there's there's some material that, that was prepared by Oxford Diocese, um, by a, a well-known autistic advocate called Anne Mehmet, and they're really useful, they're, they're really good, but they are quite context-specific to, um, to an Anglican context. Um, one core, one core part of the answer has to be that no situation can become, can really become the template for every situation. Um, every autistic person is different in terms of their, uh, sensory issues, uh, and also some of their, um, social, um, particularities and every church is different in terms of, of how it runs things it is worth saying that I think what some of these issues flag up is the extent to which our model of service is built around a particular account of normalcy again so it, it presumes that people will interact with the service in a particular way um, and just being open to that and being open to the possibility that there might be different ways of doing church um, I think is really important on a personal note, I will say that I actually found lockdown to be just wonderful because uh, because I, I was able to uh, participate in services from the home environment, which is a much more controlled environment as far as sensory things is concerned. And uh, the fact that the fact that all of a sudden churches moved to an online arrangement made made that again here's the language again it actually normalized that in a really interesting way it made it less marginalizing to rely on that um but i think it's where one of the key things that any church needs to do is just to ask its people repeatedly constantly um are there particular things that you need to be different here which which might come down to some of the issues you've talked about in terms of the way that the services run. It might come down to the kind of hand soap you have in the bathrooms, because for some people that might be triggering. For other people, your PA, your public address system might be the triggering thing because of the noise. For others, it might just be the chaos of, um, you know, of the activities. The only way you know is by talking to people and by asking them. And also, I think, by creating a culture where people can share their sense of, of um, whether they feel accommodated. And I want to say that, you know, I think theologically we call that love. Um, and that actually our practices are often not particularly loving. They're often 
much more concerned by maintaining a certain kind of um, pattern of worship than they are with thinking about whether what is embodied in that pattern might actually be embodied in a slightly different way. So, for example, um, one of my colleagues at the Centre for Autism and Theology, Leon Van Omen, has been working with an intentional community in Singapore that is centred around a school for autistic children. Um, and their worship is constructed in a way that accommodates uh, the, the particular characteristics of the children that are involved in that school. Um, effectively, it's an Anglican liturgy, um, but its elements are done in a way that can accommodate the disruptive behaviour um, that, or what might be perceived to be disruptive behaviour uh, from some of the children that takes care around sensory elements to make sure that the sensory environment is, um, is addressed. So there are ways, I think, that it can be done without jeopardising what we consider to be essential to worship, but it involves talking to people and it involves creating an environment where the needs of the community are taken into account. And I think one of the crucial things is that what I think we need to be very careful with is any approach to the solution that imposes new ways of marginalizing. So if, if your approach to the solution is to create a space where your neurodivergent people go and do their own thing away from everyone else, um, that could potentially at least become the basis for a new sort of marginalization. I think it's worth saying that these are also issues that need to be considered holistically. Um, you know, for example, if, if you have a noisy environment uh, because of the way that children are behaving in the environment, it's possible that that's only problematic because of the surface areas that you have in your church building, because of the space you're using, uh, because you've got a lot of reflective surfaces. So sometimes the issues can actually be addressed by thinking about the environment um, and asking whether the environment you're in and, and the way that people access that environment, whether that can be changed. I mentioned earlier that for me, the lockdown experience of accessing church via a computer screen was actually wonderful because it helped to address so many issues. And even thinking about normalizing hybrid access to services uh, so that people are part of the service without necessarily being in a difficult environment, that might be a solution for some, for some people. Um, but I do think that thinking about it holistically so that we take the, the whole environment into account can really help with some of these issues. Well, thank you, Grant, uh, for just coming on here and uh, just you know shedding light into um, some very relevant things that are happening, uh, not just in churches, but also in education sectors, um, public policy, and and even beyond. Um, and I guess to help us land the plane here, um, you know, one thing that definitely uh, was uh, really eye um, eye opening for me was um, how how you, how you display just the situation and how it's almost like a double-edged blade where on one hand uh, we want to bring to light the unique experiences of individuals but at the same time when we use an all-inclusive biblical perspective or language it it could possibly minimize or even hurt those in um in particular groups and um i guess just 
uh, as a final as final comments here, um, uh, I'm sure this is something that you know it's been brought up multiple times in our conversation. So, so if any last reflections you have, but also one thing I would also like to hear from you is you know reflecting on celebration as well. Uh, what are uh, can you provide us reflections or recommendations and maybe things that you've experienced or seen where we can celebrate where um, victory you know was one and things to look forward to um, in light of the things that we've been talking about today one of the I think one of the challenges in answering that is that the best examples of things to be celebrated will often happen at such a local level where they're so meaningful that they don't necessarily register outside of that local level. Um, so it's actually very difficult, in a sense, to talk about it here, because the danger is that what we're drawn to talk about celebrating are, are big public things or, or, or big things that seem to have captured the awareness of people. Um, and they're wonderful, or they can be wonderful, but they can actually, I think, cause us not to realise some of the little victories, um, some of the little transformations that are happening along the way. So I'll give you one example that's not actually in the church, but that I think represents a, something beginning to shift in public awareness. And about, it's an example I've talked about already, um, which was the, the docu a series of documentaries that ran on BBC national television in the UK. Um, which was led by Chris Packham, an autistic scientist, and involved Chris working with autistic people of different kinds um, whose autism manifested itself, embodied itself in different ways, and giving them voices to, to affirm their identities, to express their identities, and interestingly to do so in front of the people that they work with, study with, live with. Um, by making short films that they led. So what, what they did was he would work with these individuals to create a film that would communicate something of their experience. So I think the word communication here is the absolutely crucial one. Um, but because it was led by them, instead of promoting an autism awareness that was actually already refracted through the perspective of the neurotypical. It was developing an account of autism awareness that was coming from autistic people themselves. So it was autistic led. And what's, what I think is to be celebrated there is that that's a, a very public example. The people he was working with were, if you like, very ordinary people. Um, but it was a very public example of what can happen when autistic people set the agenda for how autism is represented. Now, that's also beginning to filter through into research, and there's a growing number of conferences and a growing number of bodies that are particularly concerned to develop and promote and host autistic-led research, and to involve autistic people in the design of research, to have autistic researchers at the heart of it, but also uh, to have partners for, for the research coming from the autistic community. Rather than just coming to autistic people and researching them with a set of questions that the neurotypicals have drawn up, 
um, you know, which inevitably read autism through a particular um, lens. Um, and that I think is something to be celebrated because although it's big in public, the more that that can become a model for theological ways of thinking about autism. Some of those bad theological ways of thinking about autism I talked about, they don't begin with the autistic person talking about who they are, what they're like, how they think, how they experience the sensory world. Um, I mean, one of the big shifts, we've not really talked about it that much today, but one of the big shifts in autism understanding is that the sensory issues have really moved to the center of the conversation in a way that they weren't always in the historical models of talking about autism. Um, so the more that we can get to a world where the discourse about autism is led by autistic people, um, whether they're formally diagnosed or not, um, the more that we can get to a place where the discourse about autism is led by autistic people and informed by autistic people, it takes us back to the point that we made when talking to, to Sydney, that um, really that's, that's just love in action. But that, that's a body that's allowing its bits to operate and to be valued and, and not to invest all its time in, you know, the face, the smile or whatever. The, the other bit that I think has occurred to me recently is that, and this, this ties in with the way that you framed the question around the inclusion agenda. Inclusion agendas can often be very superficial. They can often be very static. They can often emphasize, you know, what we're starting to describe as optics, what you see when you look at something. And accounts of neurodiversity can themselves actually just become part of that, where our understanding of a diversity that is included is simply that there's lots of diverse people in the space um, visibly represented. Um, really, neurodiversity is only alive when the different minds and the different parts of the body are actually functioning. So in other words, it, it, it's not enough to think about Paul's image of the body in anatomical terms. We've got to think about Paul's image of the body in physiological terms. This is a living body where the parts are alive and where the parts recognize that they gain something uh, by the presence of those bits that they can sometimes overlook and undervalue. So I think the more that we move towards an artistic led and the more we celebrate examples like that documentary, examples of artistic led representation, and the more that within our churches, that's translated not just into an acknowledgement and an accommodation of the presence of autistic people, but is translated into a facilitation of those people being autistic and, and that contributing again to the life of the church. You know, if you didn't have your autistic people in the church, if you don't have your autistic people in the church, and if you don't enable your autistic people to thrive in the church, your church isn't thriving. Uh, it, your church is, is a facade, which is often what churches are content to be. 
um, it, it's an exercise in optics rather than an exercise in physiology. Well, Professor McCaskill, thank you so much for that that final challenge. And thank you so much for your time for, for joining us and for uh, having this discussion with us. We really enjoyed it. Sure.